0: All right, let's pray before we have our, our Bible study. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us and for your words of wisdom. And Father, I pray the Christians everywhere will understand what you have to say and, and what you've warned us about in your word through the Apostle Paul who loved Timothy and didn't want to see Timothy fail. So help us to do well in these things as we close out this letter. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're in the closing verses. Uh, those of you who've made it through the majority of this book with me, I appreciate it. I hope that it's been a blessing to you, at least in various parts. I, I never feel like the online recordings are nearly as powerful as as what we do on Sunday mornings, but I, I suppose that that's to be expected, right? When the body of Christ is gathered together in worship, the heart's just in another place. But uh, nevertheless, I hope that these Bible studies are profitable to you. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to read from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, to the end of the book. So here is Paul writing to Timothy, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Old Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. But grace be with you. Amen. So that's the text. That's how Paul finishes the letter. Um, just a short little uh, instruction, and we can appreciate it because this is an instruction to those who are rich now he has commanded uh, and warned earlier in chapter six that we should not pursue riches this is verse six of chapter six now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." So we've already received a, a warning about desiring to be rich, but certainly there might have been Christians in the church where Timothy was pastoring already who were already rich, and you know, they didn't. They didn't go out pursuing wealth. They just did well for themselves. Uh, a farmer with a fantastic harvest, with a great crop, with a, a lots of fields. He may not be pursuing riches, and nevertheless, he may find riches. You know, someone who happens to trade in a particular commodity, and all of a sudden, the value of that commodity increases. Someone who inherits tremendous wealth from from others. Uh, someone who's given tremendous wealth from the favor of a governor or a king." In other words, there is no command in the Bible against having riches. There are warnings about pursuing riches. And now, as we close out 1 Timothy chapter six, there there are commands to those who are rich and warnings to those who are rich. So, we've dealt with the warnings to those who would desire to be rich. And now we look at uh, the commands and the instructions to those who are already rich. And we start with the warning that two things here could be sinful. And so, you see verse 17 begin, Paul telling Timothy, Command. It's not, Give good counsel, Timothy, or give good wisdom, Timothy, or give good instruction. No, Timothy, Command. Command. Those who are rich in this present age. And he's got two things here. One, not to be haughty. Two, nor to trust in uncertain riches. So two commands to those who are rich. And if you're rich, and I'd say that by uh, most standards in the world, there are a a large number of uh, Christians who are rich in the Western world who we might, you know, uh, designate as middle class or maybe towards the upper end of the lower class even. Nevertheless, they have uh, plenty of food. They have plenty of shelter. They have plenty of clothing. Uh, maybe they have uh, pursued freedom from debt. Uh, by the way, I did a whole Bible study on Wednesday nights about wealth and debt. You should, you should seek to be free from debt. That is biblical counsel. You should not outspend your means on wants and desires. You should live a life centered around contentness. The very idea of going into debt for things that you want and yet can't pay for is the opposite of contentness. So we should, we should strive to be content which should free us from debt. And if we are freed from debt in our uh, Western world, the chances are we are going to have surplus. Surplus was not a common thing, certainly not the kind of surplus that we see in the ancient world. I mean, we have refrigerators that can store food for a long period of time and freezers that can freeze food in grocery stores and supermarkets where we can freely go obtain food uh, for very little money, really, uh, when you think about uh, when you think about it. It may not always feel that way, but it is, it's true. Comparatively speaking, you know, we don't have to spend a fortune to make sure that we have food, shelter, and clothing, certainly not here in, in Midwestern Ohio. So the extra surplus that we could have if we were responsible and didn't outspend our means uh, would be substantial. And for those of us uh, who have uh, enjoyed any kind of surplus, these are two commands because to be haughty or high-minded or conceited, any of those uh, words are interchangeable in translations, to have a very high opinion of yourself because you've managed to do well or you've managed to save or you've managed to come into a surplus, to have a conceited opinion of, well, look at me, look at where I fit in society, I'm doing pretty well, look, I've got the big house, I've got the nice car, I've got the, look at me, I've got the plenty of money, I'm in good shape, that kind of high-minded conceitedness is sin. It's pride. It's pride. And so Paul tells Timothy, command those who are rich that they not be high-minded, that they not think of themselves as superior to others, that they not think of themselves and their position as beneficial to others. In other words, just because someone has a surplus or just because someone has money does not mean, in God's eyes, that they are in a more favorable position than another person. That's the idea when we're talking about high-mindedness. Someone who is high-minded or conceited assumes that they are in a better position than others. That's what it means. They believe, well, we are in a better position than others. Now, if you're a Christian, you're in a better position than someone who's lost, right? But that's not boasting in yourself. That's boasting in the Lord who saved you and put you in that position. But there is a great temptation, because this is how the world sees it, to imagine, to imagine that because of material possessions or material wealth, you're in a more advantageous situation than someone else. The Bible warns and cautions you of the opposite, that... By gaining material wealth, you are potentially at a spiritual disadvantageous situation. You are spiritually in a difficult and tempting and ensnaring spot where pride can take hold and lust and ambition can find their their fuel and the bank account that you can support your desires with. You know, the the Bible cautions the rich. and Jesus says, you know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. The disciples say, well, then how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, you know, only by the grace of God. If not for God, no one could. Salvation truly is a miracle. But the warning should be heard. Understand, having wealth does not mean that you are in an advantageous situation before God. It might mean that you are more spiritually vulnerable than the person who doesn't have wealth. So Paul is is telling Timothy, command those who are rich not to be high-minded because they have nothing to be high-minded about. They have more, they have more. That doesn't mean they're in a better spot. It might mean they're in a worse spot. And truthfully, I think that if you are around the church long enough you'll see this. People who have more are more likely to just leave the fellowship of God when something goes wrong or when something doesn't go the way that it's supposed to go or the way that they want it to go. They just think, "Well, you know, I won't do this anymore. I'll just go I'll just go out to the lake or I'll just go camping or I'll just go golfing or I'll just you know, I can find better ways to spend my time if this is how it's going to be because they see themselves in a advantageous a better situation than others. Not in God's eyes. Not in God's eyes. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in their riches. So this is not the same as haughtiness. Haughtiness or high-mindedness thinks, well, because I have a lot more money, I'm obviously in a better situation than other people. No, you're not. But the other side of that is people who, who have money they put their confidence and their trust in the riches that they have. They they think, well, you know, I'm not as as vulnerable to an economic downturn as the next person because you know I've got a little bit and I've got this paid off and I've got this saved up and I've I've got this put away. So I can, you know, my confidence is is in what I've attained and what I have and the riches I've built. You know, my, my confidence is in the the. the food that I've stashed away for many years. It's in the the bunker I've built my backyard. It's in the 401k or the retirement plan that I know I've got coming to me even if I lose my job or even if something goes wrong. No one can take that away. My inheritance is coming, whatever it is. They trust in the uncertainness of their riches. But you know, people even on the lower end of the economic ladder can do this. You know, sometimes you see people and and, uh, they they have come off a background of, of really struggling and kind of living hand-to-mouth week by week. And, you know, they get a couple raises and they spend a few years and now all of a sudden money's coming a little easier. And rather than continue to ask God to provide for their needs, they just trust, ah, well, you know, I can take care of this now. Maybe they stop praying out of gratitude before their meals. Or maybe they maybe they think that their own hard labor is doing the all the provisional work in their life, and it's not the Almighty God taking care of them. Notice what, how Paul phrases the second command. The first command, don't be haughty. But the second command, listen, he doesn't say, nor you know, command them not to trust in riches. He doesn't say that. He says, command them not to trust in uncertain riches. You See the emphasis on that. There is nothing in this world that's certain. You now, there were a lot of people who thought that they had certain riches in Germany before the Nazis came to power. They didn't. And you know, There were a lot of people before the Great Depression who trusted in the certainty of their, of their riches. There's that great movie, Cinderella Man. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen Cinderella Man, but about this boxer who uh, has a great comeback story. But, you know, he, uh, Jim Braddock, you know, he, he had, before the Great Depression, he uh, had taken an ownership stake in investing in a, in a taxi company in New York City. How could that go wrong? You know, you, you save up enough money, you win enough money to invest in an ownership stake and, and a taxi service. In New York City, you think that's a pretty stable investment, right? And the Great Depression hits, and you lose everything. Riches are uncertain. Riches are unstable. We watch hurricanes wipe out riches. We watch fire wipe out riches. We've watched nuclear plants melting down wipe out riches. We've watched viruses wipe out riches. We've watched the fear of all these things. Wipe out riches. It says you command rich people who are Christians, not to think that they're in a favorable position, because they're not. There's only one favorable position, and that's the sinner who's been saved and has been guaranteed an eternal inheritance. And there's no special mark in the kingdom of God. There's no special favorable position for the rich. And you tell them also, don't trust in the uncertainness of their riches, because that's exactly what they are—uncertain but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Think about that. Trust in God because, you know, the rich person who is sitting on their back porch, you know, eating good food and drinking good wine, you understand, God provides food. God provides wine. God provides children and God provides the air that you breathe into your lungs. So don't trust in the food and the wine or the inheritance or the good health. Trust in God who provides all of the things that we enjoy. Trust in God who has provided you all the little things that bring joy to your life. They all come from God. God has given us richly, Christians, richly from the poorest To the richest, he has given us richly good things to enjoy. Trust in him, not in the things. So two commands. One, don't think you're in a favorable position because you're rich. Satan has his way with rich people all the time. And if you've got all the riches in the world and spend eternity in hell, you are not in a favorable position. Two, don't trust in uncertain riches, but put your confidence in God because the riches don't last. But God is faithful and will keep His promises. Okay. Three things the rich person must do. Verse 18. Let them, one, do good, that they may be rich in good works. The rich person who has freedom from some of the uh, difficulties of of provision that the less wealthy might have, has a command here to do good works that they may be rich in good works. The rich person is supposed to seek to exchange earthly riches for heavenly riches, which for a Christian come with good works. For a Christian come with good works. If you're not a Christian, you can perform good works until the day you die. It's not going to get you anything in heaven because you're not going to go to heaven. But for the Christian who's going to heaven, you know, why not use uh, whatever riches you have on the earth to to perform good works so you can be rich before God in good works, in good things you've done. What's the point of riches if you're not going to do good and godly things with them? What's the point? So they need to to do good works. Second thing, they need to give. They need to be ready to give. Rich people need to do good works. You know, they can fuel things that poor people can't fuel with money and resources they can invest their time and energy because after all they they they're not as concerned about food and clothing right so but but they also need to give rich people need to give of those riches to others you know that's the second thing three they need to be willing to share if you're rich you need to be willing to share people who are rich should be the most generous and the most the most helpful people in the world and oftentimes they're not. Oftentimes they're very stingy and tight-fisted, and they maintain this sense of frugalness and saving well beyond any necessary means to do so. Now, if frugalness is out of contentedness, that's fine, but what's the point of having riches if you're not gonna do anything good with them? What's the point of having riches if you're not going to give to others to bring them joy? What's the point in having riches if you're not going to share with others who have need? What's the point? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. The point must be all about you, right? And the person who looks at their riches like that is not going to heaven. And that's the warning that comes next. Listen to the warning. It's about heaven. Listen to the warning. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Those are the three things they got to do. Do good works, give, share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come so that they may lay hold on eternal life. It's very similar to verse 12. Here's Paul in verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. So, Paul's message to the Christian is not, well, now you're saved. You don't need to worry about about eternity anymore. You don't need to think about eternity anymore. Just go out and try to live a good and happy life, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. That is not Paul's message. You know what? There are a lot of Christians living like that. There are a lot of Christians who they think, well, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I don't really need to think about eternity anymore. I just know that it's going to be there like a life insurance policy whenever I die. But that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is fight the good fight. The message twice in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is lay hold on eternal life. Why? Because you may think that you're saved and you may not be. And you may think that you have a promise of eternal life. And the Spirit of God actually may not be in your heart, may not be working in you. And again, why should you believe the Spirit of God is working in your life if you're not producing good works and giving and sharing? Why should you think that the Spirit of the Almighty God, who gives freely to everyone to enjoy things, is working in your life if you don't give freely to everyone to enjoy things? Why would you think that the Spirit of God... And if the Spirit of God isn't in you, you may think you have eternal life, only to die and watch it slip right through your fingers, because it was never truly there. So Paul is saying... Let them do good, let them give, let them share, and let them store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that's heaven, that's eternity, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Christian, you don't save yourself by good works, but if you are saved and the Spirit of God is in you, that Spirit produces good works. And when you see the Spirit of God producing these things in your life, then you can have assurance of your salvation because you see the Spirit of God changing you and transforming you into the being the kind of person that you were not before. Listen to the warning here. I want to read to you Psalm chapter 49 before we close 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now listen to this. This is Psalm 49. I'm just going to read, start to finish. Now you hear this. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both the low person and the high. Remember, don't be high-minded. Both the rich and the poor. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall give understanding. You want to be wise? You want to understand? Listen to this. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Here it is. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? When when people are after me, why should I be afraid when those who are against me are at my heels? Those who trust in their wealth And boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pent. In other words, there is no redemption that the rich can pay to God that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Money cannot redeem you before God. Redemption is costly. It is costly. It costs the blood of Jesus Christ, not money. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. No one can save even a family member from the pit, from death, from hell. For he sees wise men die. Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish, and they leave their wealth to others. That's the fool in this proverb here. The the fool in this Psalms, is the rich person. Likewise, the fool, the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Don't think that your wealth is putting you in an advantageous position, it's not. You'll die and your wealth can't redeem you. Your wealth might be the most disadvantageous part of your life. Your wealth may be the thing holding you back from knowing every advantage there is in Christ. Your wealth may be keeping you from eternal life and the power of God. It was for the rich young ruler. That's what Jesus was telling him. The inner thought—that is, the, their inner thought—is a great verse, Psalm forty-nine, eleven. Their inner thought, the wealthy person's inner thought, what they don't say but what they really think, is that their houses will last forever, and their dwelling places through all generations. So they call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity, of their offspring, who approve of their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death will feed on them. But the upright, not the wealthy, not the poor, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Because the upright will not know death as an eternal fate. The upright will know eternal life and a resurrection. The upright shall have dominion over the wealthy in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, and he shall receive me. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave and he shall receive me." You can't do that with money. And if your money is keeping you from exercising good works and godly living and faith in Him, then your money is not putting you in an advantageous situation. And if you find yourself listening to this and you know that this is speaking to your heart and your position, but you're trying to defend yourself and justify yourself by saying well I do good things with my money too and I do good things with my money too now just stop all the defense and just let the Spirit of God do the work that it's supposed to do just surrender yourself to what the Spirit of God is telling you and I'm not going to close this message by asking you to give a dime to the church this isn't a plea for offerings this is a warning for your soul your wealth may not be putting you in an advantageous situation. It may be holding you back. And if it is, if it's holding you back from true salvation and the work of the indwelling spirit of our holy God, then you're watching eternal life slip through your fingers. So there's the warning. Now, final words, First Timothy chapter 6. We made it through this whole book. Final words, Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. I don't think there was a person on the earth who Paul cared about more than Timothy. And this is what he says to him. Old Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard what was committed to your trust. What had Timothy been entrusted with? Well, on one level, he'd been entrusted with something fairly unique, something most Christians aren't entrusted with. He'd been entrusted with pastoring this church in Ephesus. So on one level, that's kind of unique to Timothy. But on the other level, the reason that Timothy was called to pastor the church in Ephesus was for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, That saving, transforming message of good news in Jesus Christ the good news that can course-correct a sinner who's on the wrong path and, and steer them out of the broad path that leads to eternal destruction and on to the narrow path that leads through a narrow gate to eternal life. So in the broader sense, Timothy had been committed to the gospel. He had been entrusted with this message of saving hope. Entrusted with the commission of Jesus Christ to make disciples. And in that sense, this applies to all of us. Paul says, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard. You think about that word, guard. When I think about a guard, I think about a basketball guard. You know? And it's funny, a basketball guard is named for its defensive position, for his defensive position. Not for his offensive position, you know. The word "guard" implies defense, right? Because basketball, you know, you you have to guard someone. You could be the best offensive player in the world, and if you let your man go around you and score on you like, like 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 water through a sieve, then it doesn't matter how many points you score. So when I think of a, of the idea of guard. I think of I think of a basketball player. I think of how frustrating it is to watch. Uh, one person, try to guard someone whom they can't guard. And I think of even me, how frustrating it can be sometimes if I take it seriously, enough to try to guard someone that I can't guard. But that person who I'm supposed to guard, you know, they're my responsibility. They're not my teammates' responsibility. They're mine. You know, there are five guys on offense, five guys on defense. I'm supposed to guard that guy. You know, Timothy was given something precious. He's given the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He'd been entrusted with the Spirit of God working in his life. Timothy is supposed to guard that, protect that. Protect it from the work of these false teachers. Protect it from thoughts of greed and selfish ambition. Protect it from a desire to be rich or a desire to have more, a desire to get out of pastoral ministry what he can't get. Protect it from sin. Guard it. It's an interesting way to close a letter, you know what I mean? It's, we always like to think of, uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to give a big speech at halftime or if we're going to listen to somebody really fire up a crowd, you know, you want to end on this big charge. All right, let's go out there and get them, right? And Paul does the opposite. He says, whoa, my final word, Timothy, is guard. Guard. Protect. Protect what you've been entrusted with, Christian. What have you been entrusted with? Maybe you're a mom and you've been entrusted with the gospel work in the lives of your children. Maybe you're a dad, and if so, you've been entrusted with the gospel work in the lives of your children. You know, maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you work in a nurse in the nursery. Maybe. You, Maybe you help lead in worship. You've been given an important function in Christ. Guard that. Don't let Satan have a piece of that. Don't let him get to that. And we've all been granted the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, guard that. Protect that because it's precious and you need that. You need to be able to speak the gospel into the world around you. Protect it. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it some strayed concerning the faith. So, two instructions to Timothy at the end here. Guard what you've been entrusted with and avoid fools who think that they have some special knowledge or some special gift or some special talent and it is falsely called knowledge guard and avoid are the final two instructions of paul to timothy guard the gospel the ministry what god would do in your life guard it protect it avoid fools Avoid false teaching. Avoid babblings and contradictions. Why? By professing it, some have strayed from the faith. But grace be with you. I think those two things go hand in hand. Some, by false teaching, have strayed from the faith. They've they've left the faith. But, Timothy, grace be with you. And it's plural, it means grace be with you all, your church. Grace be with all of you. Let God's goodness be upon you. Let let a better fate be determined for you by the power of God than the fate for those who strayed from the gospel, who have, this was earlier in chapter 6, who have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. No, not, not you, Timothy. Guard what's been granted to you. Avoid these kinds of guys who have pierced themselves through with many sorrows, who have strayed from the faith. No, no. That's not, that's not your fate, Timothy. Grace be with you. And the word, amen. Let it be. So, you know, I want to pray for you now, and I want to pray for our church, and And if you're watching this on some kind of great time delay and I'm dead or in the grave or much older, you can pray too, right where you are. God will hear the prayer of faith. Let me pray for you now. Father, the world values riches above nearly everything else. Perhaps for some, family or achievements will compare to it, but But riches, riches are what really set people apart in the world's eyes That's, we have the upper class and we have the lower class and we call them the upper class and lower class for a reason because riches and wealth mean status to us but not to you. Keep us from thinking about wealth that way. Free us from thinking about wealth that way. Help us to grow less attached to our possessions. Help us to do good works and to give and to share so that we may lay hold of eternal life. Father, guard our hearts. Help us to guard our hearts. Not to run around on offense all the time, attacking everything around us, but to give special thought and attention to the gospel that's been committed to us and to guard it, and to protect it. To protect ourselves and what you're doing in our lives from temptation and the attacks of the world. And help us to avoid false teachers who would shipwreck the faith of people around them in the name of some wisdom that's actually foolishness. Father, I pray for the people listening to this, wherever they are, it may only ever be four or five of them. I don't think that I'm ever going to have thousands of views on YouTube. But whoever's watching this and whoever made it to the end, here I am in New Paris, Ohio in the middle of September in a crazy year and I'm praying for them. And whatever time or place they are, I'm praying for them. I'm asking you, Father, to work in their hearts so that wherever they are, so you'll be, and the gospel will be, and your kingdom will always have representatives here in this ungodly place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.